Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech and get off my lawn. You know, as I get older, I have to work harder to keep up with trends in tech. I mean, I I find that the stereotypes about old people getting out of touch with new tech are, at least for me, partly true. I love tech, and I do try to stay up to date with news. But some trends appear, and I'm a little slow on the uptake. And I would say that holds true with TikTok, the insanely popular video app and meme generator extraordinaire. And that's kind of funny because I was at least semi-aware of it on some level before it was even TikTok. So in this episode, we're going to look into the app, the company that owns the app, the people who developed it, and the controversies surrounding it, as well as the culture that has grown up around it. And it's all pretty fascinating stuff. There's actually a couple of origin stories for TikTok, because as it turns out, TikTok is the product of some acquisitions and mergers of other apps. Let's start by taking a look at the company ByteDance, which as of this recording, still owns TikTok. More about that later in this episode. And that story really begins with its founder, a Chinese entrepreneur named Zhang Yiming. Now, I'd say that Zhang has kept a pretty low profile in the West. In fact, to dig up some info on him, I really had to pull up some articles that were written in Chinese, and then I had to rely heavily on Google Translate. So with that in mind, we have to take a lot of what I've got to say with a few grains of salt for two big reasons. One, journalism in China is not exactly objective. The state, that is the Chinese Communist Party often plays a very big role in that. And so the truthiness of a piece can come under question. Second, the translation algorithms that we depend upon today, they sometimes fail to capture more subtle linguistic elements like idiom or you know metaphor, simile. So some stuff does get lost in translation. So with that in mind, let's see what we can find out. Now, according to the Chinese website Sohu, which is part of a big internet company that I'll have to cover in a future episode, here's what I was able to discover. Zhang initially studied microelectronics, but then switched to software engineering in college at Nankai University. And so he was there from 2001 to 2005. Upon graduation, he interviewed with a company called Kuxun, and he became employee number five over there. Kuxun got its start as a meta search engine designed to pull up train ticket options for travelers in China. It's kind of like how search services like Hotels.com or Booking.com will aggregate deals for various hotels in a region so that you can find the one that best suits your needs, whether it's for your budget or where you plan on being or whatever. Over time, the Kuxun site expanded its scope, becoming more of a general search engine for everything from shopping to job positions. And it would change its focus numerous times, sometimes scaling back to focus more on the travel industry and sometimes going more broad. In the meantime, Zhang rose rapidly from being a software engineer to leading teams of engineers who were developing the various products that would get rolled out onto the site. Zhang would leave Kuxun in 2008, 
And at that point, the site had not yet become profitable, possibly due to this wavering focus on what the site actually was about. But it wouldn't be the end of his involvement with Kuksun, the company, however. We'll get back to that. So in the meantime, he joined Microsoft. But he found that working for an established global company that had a fairly rigid corporate structure was a very different experience from working in a startup environment. And he didn't stick around with Microsoft for very long. He would leave that company to join another Chinese company called Fanfu, which was essentially a clone of Twitter. It was a a short messaging service style social platform device. That did not necessarily go that smoothly either, though it wasn't through any fault of Zhang's necessarily. In the summer of 2009, a series of riots relating to China's treatment of ethnic minorities erupted in northwest China. In an effort to clamp down on the situation, the Chinese government began to restrict communication channels as much as they possibly could, and that included the effective shutdown of Fanfu and several other Chinese websites, which would remain dark until the spring of 2010. Zhang Yiming didn't wait around for the Chinese government to lift restrictions. Instead, he left the company, and he pounced on what he saw as an opportunity to have his own startup. Expedia, the online travel company, was in talks to acquire Kuksun, Zhang's old employer. But as I mentioned earlier, Kuksun had sort of wandered all over the place when trying to establish what it actually was. And one business it had dipped its corporate toe into was in real estate. And that's what Zhang was interested in. He arranged to acquire that part of Kuksun's business because it wasn't really aligned with Expedia's strategy and it wouldn't be needed for Expedia's acquisition. It was a, a part of the company that wasn't really that interesting to Expedia. So Zhang Yiming was able to swoop in and purchase that part of the company and he founded his first independent company, which he called 99fong.com. A couple of years later, Zhang saw a new opportunity, this time revolving around how people access news. China was lagging a little bit behind the rest of the world in this endeavor, but even in China, it was clear that mobile devices were completely upending the way people get access to information. So with that in mind, Zhang resigned as the CEO of 99fong.com, and he founded a new company, one that would be known in the West as ByteDance. B-Y-T-E, Dance. The original product from ByteDance wasn't a short video service, nor did it have anything to do with lip-syncing to songs or generating memes or anything like that. It was a news aggregator service, one that would pull headlines from various Chinese news organizations. The app was called Chao and it was a big hit in China, despite the fact that Zhang initially encountered very little enthusiasm from investors for his idea. ByteDance would launch a video sharing app for mobile devices called Douyin in China, but it would be known elsewhere as TikTok. And the app allowed users to create short, like really short video clips, 15 seconds long, and then share them online. Users would create lip sync videos. They had access to a large database of sound bites they could use, or they might create short comedy videos, or they might show off odd or impressive talents. 
The service launched in China in 2016. It received a warm reception in China, but when they tried to expand the app outside of China in 2017, it did not immediately catch on. That would change a bit later in 2017 when ByteDance would merge its TikTok app with another app called Musical.ly, or Musical.ly if you prefer. And that's when things would really take off. But that means we need to chat about Musical.ly for a second and where that came from. That started as a different Chinese startup, this time co-founded by friends Alex Xu and Louis Yang. The two originally intended to create a short-form video service meant for educational videos. So these were supposed to be things like how-to videos or explainer videos, you know, like how this thing works videos. I can identify with that. They called their app Cicada, and they pitched it to venture capitalists back in 2014. And investors liked the idea, and they poured about a quarter of a million dollars worth of cash into the effort. There was only... One tiny little problem. Nobody was using it. They, they were able to develop the tool. They launched the tool. They saw very little adoption. And as it turned out, they, they realized the reason was it's actually really difficult to communicate complicated ideas effectively in just a few minutes. I mean, I've done that. That's been my gig for a while with making short videos. I, I used to do that back with How Stuff Works all the time. So. It's hard to do, and that's why you notice that the average running time for a tech stuff episode is closer to like 45 minutes. It's just, it's not easy to boil all that down in just a few minutes and make it accurate and interesting. So the co-founders discovered that people didn't want to use the app because it took so long to write, produce, and edit videos that the return on investment in terms of time and effort just weren't there. It wasn't fun to use. Creation really needed to be more effortless and have a better payoff. And young folks who were leading the way when it came to mobile phone adoption just weren't into Cicada. So it was not really succeeding. So the co-founders were faced with a problem. They had built tools that worked, but they weren't really suitable for the purposes that they had in mind. People just weren't using it. So they were running out of cash, and they had a couple of different choices that they could really followed. They could go back to their investors and return what little money was left with an apology saying, we built this thing, it works, but nobody's using it. Or they could attempt a pivot and see if they could leverage the tools they had already built for some other purpose. And that's when they decided to give entertainment a shot. Now, according to Zhu, he made this decision after visiting the United States. He was in Mountain View, California, according to his story, and saw a group of teenagers on a train that were listening to music. They were taking selfies and videos with the music in the background, and they were using social media apps to add filters and virtual stickers on top of the images and the video. And he thought, hey, you know, these kids are sharing stuff in a really creative way, and they're kludging it together, right? They're, they're doing this by using different things to try and make something new. If I made a tool, if I used the stuff we developed for Cicada and I adapted it so that it was all, all of those elements were together in one app, people would use it because they're doing it already, but they're doing it by, you know, kind of piecing it together piecemeal. If I put it all together, it's going to be a big hit. Now, I find it interesting that, at least according to the sources I looked at, Zhu wasn't inspired by previous short-form video services like Vine, 
Now, Vine was a short-form video sharing service that Twitter had acquired shortly after Vine had been founded. Users could create six-second-long looping videos. Those videos lived on Vine's servers, but they could easily be shared to platforms like Facebook and Twitter. In 2014, when Zhu and Yang were working on their tweaked service, Vine was still a thing, though Twitter would shut that service down in 2016-2017. After about a month of making changes to their original platform, the Cicada team created a new service that they called Musical.ly, or Musical.ly. Users could create 15-second-long videos with this app. They saw some early adoption and user retention, but growth was a little slow in the beginning. They were running low on cash when they made some more adjustments, a big one being that they repositioned the logo so that it wouldn't get cropped out when the videos would get shared on services like Instagram. So that meant that once people saw these videos, they could actually see the logo for Music Lee, and they knew where to go in order so that they could get the app and, and make their own videos. And adoption really took off at that point, particularly in the United States. It did not receive widespread adoption back in China, but the Musical.ly app would hit number one on the iTunes App Store, which guaranteed that the app would have a prominent position that helped drive adoption, particularly in the United States. The Musical.ly team created some features that really helped it get attention. One was creating a type of tier called Best Fans Forever, or BFF. So if you followed a Musical.ly creator, you could become a BFF of that creator who would follow you back, essentially, your BFFs with each other. So let's say two users become BFFs. They could then record videos of themselves lip-syncing to the same song, for example. And Music Lee would take these two videos and edit them together, creating what was called a duet. So it would switch back and forth between the two little videos to create a single experience, as long as the two users were BFFs of each other. A related feature allowed Music Lee users to create a video response to another video, building a chain of videos together. So you could do a Q&A style format that Music Lee would stitch together. So then users could see the full thing later. They could see the questions and the answers, or they could see a video and a response. And these features, along with the ability to post videos to other popular platforms like Instagram, meant Music Lee had an appeal that tapped right into the zeitgeist. Before long, it became a launching pad for internet celebrities, as well as musicians who otherwise were finding discovery to be an insurmountable challenge. So, you had Music Lee, which was doing well in the United States and in Europe, as well as several other markets. And you had Douyin, or TikTok, which was doing well in China, but hadn't gained much traction anywhere else. Zhang saw the chance to bring together two similar but unrelated services under one company, and so ByteDance would make its move. When we come back, I'll talk about that acquisition and what came next, but first let's take a quick break. Music Lee started back in 2014. TikTok, or, or Douyin, had launched in 2016. ByteDance was doing incredibly well, largely driven by the enormous success of the news aggregator service it had built years before. 
Based on funding rounds in China, ByteDance had a valuation of nearly $20 billion around this time, which is, in fact, an extremely princely sum. In November 2017, news broke that ByteDance was making a move to acquire the Music Lee service, which itself had been valued at nearly $1 billion. So while I was watching friends do silly lip-syncing videos to songs from the musical Hamilton, these companies were skyrocketing in value. In December 2017, the deal was finalized for an undisclosed amount. Analysts estimate it was somewhere between $800 million and $1 billion. Not a bad take for the developers of Music Lee, who had started out with a failed effort to create an educational video tool. I really wish my failures paid off like that. Now, I'm being a bit snarky, but I have to point out that the services were both doing really, really well, both before and after ByteDance acquired Musical Lee. By mid-2018, Musical Lee had 100 million active monthly users. TikTok, or Douyin, had 500 million users in China. And those users were generating tons of data, and they were watching lots of ads. And as we all know, this is really valuable stuff, particularly when you're looking at it in bulk. So ByteDance was sitting on a treasure trove of information as well as getting lots of money through ad deals. And it really gave the company an enormous boost in value. In August 2018, ByteDance announced it was shuttering Musical Lee as a brand. It was going to go away as its own thing. And it revamped the service into TikTok. So it unified the name across its two services. However, the company would still continue to operate the Douyin version of TikTok separately on Chinese servers. This was so the company could adhere to Chinese government requirements. I'll talk more about that a little later in this episode. So... Even though there was a unified name, there are still two distinct separate incarnations of TikTok to this day. One month after ByteDance consolidated TikTok, the service reached a new milestone. In September 2018, it became the top app in monthly installs in Apple's App Store. It surpassed Snapchat, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. It was a social media app on the rise. This was a huge deal, and driving this adoption were young users who otherwise weren't quite as keen to join some of the more established networks out there. Now, that being said, the user base still wasn't as big as something like Facebook, which is a true monolith of a social platform. When it comes to total users, Facebook remains king, but TikTok was seeing much faster adoption than other platforms at this time. While all this was going on from an adoption perspective, there's another aspect we need to address, and that's the cultural impact of TikTok. The short-form video restrictions meant people had to come up with creative ways to make use of that time and of the platform, and they had to do it in order to stand out among all the other stuff being uploaded every day. TikTok culture began to evolve, and soon there was a TikTok-optimized form of storytelling and of humor. TikTok emerged at the same time as a generation of kids who had grown up in the smartphone age, and they were all becoming teenagers around this time. So smartphones have immersed us in media like nothing before. Now, my generation would spend hours in front of a television every week. 
And there were often times that we could easily escape from mass media if we wanted to, you know, just go outside or whatever. Because cell phones were barely a thing when I was a kid. There was no YouTube or Facebook. There were no smartphones. Even digital cameras were incredibly rare and expensive. And so my generation developed a very different sensibility and relationship with communication and humor. Now, I don't say that it's superior sensibility. I don't think my generation had a better version of that than any other generation. I'm just pointing out that it's different. So you contrast my generation with the teens of the 21st century. The internet and mobile devices have changed how we experience, consume, and interact with media. Everything seems pulled into the media realm. People who would otherwise have led fairly average lives were able to leverage online tools to become celebrities. They, they've been able to amass fortunes by vlogging or live streaming games or developing themselves into a brand. It's a totally different landscape. And as such, it provides a much different launch point for humor and communication. And that's what we're seeing on TikTok. TikTok lets users share short videos that often end up being a reflection, commentary, or criticism of some form of media or cultural idea. And it's easily shared and it's easily digested. So in many ways, it reminds me of how people tend to encounter the news. The 24-hour news cycle created a demand for news. You had to fill up all that time with something if you're going to be broadcasting 24 hours a day. And then the internet comes along and took that 24-hour news cycle and made it a bazillion times worse. One consequence of this is that we don't tend to have very long memories when it comes to big events because we're flooded with notifications whenever the next big event happens. And because the internet is global, there's always a big event happening somewhere. So it just becomes this sequence of big events. Well, TikTok videos kind of taps into that in a little way. Video creators can become famous. Some may only achieve temporary notoriety, but other people have launched entire careers from TikTok. And they can make ironic observations about the world and media and memes that are going on at that time. Most videos use a soundtrack taken from established media, such as a musical artist or a film soundtrack or audio from a television show. And so to someone like me, the videos might appear silly or unimportant because I'm a grumpy old man, but to a different generation, it's an actual response, whether conscious or otherwise, to the environment that they're growing up in. Also because these TikTok videos rely so heavily on identifiable pop culture media, they tend to transcend barriers like language, so they become really accessible. Oh, and the the tone is really interesting, too. There's a sort of self-deprecating humor that runs through a lot of TikTok videos, which is a stark contrast to how people try to present themselves on other platforms like Instagram. On Instagram, it's far more common to see someone present themselves in full-blown self-promotion mode. So kind of like, look how awesome I am. Look how awesome my life is. Look how awesome these products I enjoy are. Don't you want these products too? Like that's kind of the perception of your typical Instagram personality, right? They are a person who are 
they're presenting themselves as a brand that interacts with other established brands. Well, a lot of TikTok users seem to use TikTok in a totally different way. They're using TikTok in a way to kind of voice their own insecurities and to deal with that and to to sort of poke fun at themselves in a self-aware way as opposed to trying to present this kind of idealistic vision of themselves. And on the app, that frequently goes fairly well. If you're viewing TikTok through the app, that's kind of the vibe you get with a lot of TikTok videos. Not all of them by any means, but it's a pretty common thread. But TikTok also has created a strange duality. So on the one hand, you had the TikTok culture of the app itself. And then on the other, you have the culture around TikTok that has grown out from the way TikTok is presented on other platforms, platforms like YouTube and Facebook, where people will upload collections of TikTok videos. They'll aggregate them much in the same way as ByteDance's news aggregator would gather headlines. Many of those compilations popping up on other platforms aren't like a best of. You know, it's like the best of TikTok featuring clever users of the app or particularly funny jokes. Instead, there are a lot of cringe compilations. These are videos where something isn't necessarily going well or maybe they're meant to serve as material for mockery and derision. So you're making, someone's making fun of another creator. So these are two very different experiences, right? On the one hand, you have the app experience, which tends to be a bit more lighthearted. And then you have the wider experience of videos appearing on other platforms where people are being, you know, jerks on the internet, as per usual. The duet feature on TikTok can be used for mockery in this way. So with a duet, a user can respond to a previously posted TikTok video, creating a split screen in which the original video plays on one side, and on the other side, you have the response video. Now, ideally, you would use this to add something of value to the original video, to create a duet. Maybe someone's singing in one video, and you harmonize with them in the duet video, and then it's presented that way together. That's the intent of this feature. However, a lot of people use it in order to make fun of the original video in some way, either to react to something that happens in the video in an over-the-top way or to just out-and-out burn the person who created the first video. So you might post an earnest attempt to sing a song, and then you might see that your video shows up on a YouTube list that's being held up for mockery by some TikTok troll who gets most of their views by tearing down other people. In TikTok culture, it's called ironic TikTok. I think it's playing pretty fast and loose with the definition of irony because often the word ironic is being used in a place for something like mean-spirited. Being mean is not necessarily being ironic. The two are not synonymous. However, this isn't exactly new. I'm not pointing out something that has just popped up. This is not to say that this generation is particularly awful. I don't think that's true at all. The internet has had plenty of forums and platforms where this stuff has happened well in the past. It's pretty widespread on TikTok, or at least on the plat secondary platforms like YouTube and Instagram, but it's not like this is a huge surprise. 
right? The, the target demographic for TikTok tends to be young people. And young people throughout most of history have often sought approval by making fun of vulnerable targets. I mean, that was true when I was a kid and the internet didn't even really exist, at least not in the minds of kids my age. The internet was a thing, but none of us had access to it. The World Wide Web didn't exist yet when I was a kid, but kids were still, you know, mean and picked on people. So this is definitely something that has been a thing for ages and ages and ages. It's just that TikTok enables it on a scale that's much larger than what you could do back when I was a kid. Like I might get fun of in front of the whole school, but that was a school of 1,300 people. It wasn't the whole internet. So this creates a pretty unusual landscape, right? The app itself isn't really plagued with trolling. Meanwhile, the secondary platforms like Instagram and YouTube are much more likely to feature trollish videos. And making it worse, a large percentage of TikTok's audience are not watching the videos on TikTok. A lot of them have never downloaded TikTok. They're watching the videos on these other platforms like Instagram and YouTube. So they're seeing more of the cringe compilations and things of that nature. So your experiences with TikTok really depend heavily on how you actually access the content. Now, not all of the ironic TikTok videos are mean-spirited. A lot of them are, but not all of them. Some are more absurdist humor that doesn't really seem to have any kind of malicious intent. It's more like a very goofy reaction to a similarly goofy video and not meant to be like, wasn't that first video terrible or whatever. But there are a lot of users who really do set out to make stuff that was either intended to belittle or insult the original creator. Some are just making stuff that is an overt attempt to be offensive, probably for no other reason than they find it amusing to get an emotional reaction out of people. It's a classic troll behavior. Others might be using TikTok to express some truly terrible beliefs that they hold, like racist beliefs or misogynistic beliefs, because they see it as a way where they can express these things without there being any kind of consequence to that. But why are these secondary platforms presenting a more toxic version of TikTok in the first place? Why is it so popular there? Well, it mostly has to do with how algorithms suss out which videos they should suggest to users. Videos that get a lot of engagement tend to rise to the top because engagement translates to spending more time on that platform. And spending more time on the platform means spending more time around ads. Spending more time around ads means that the platform makes more money. So you see how this drives decision-making from a platform perspective. The platforms like YouTube and Instagram are businesses, and a driving motivator for business owners is to maximize profits. So to do that, if you're YouTube or Instagram, you have to find ways to keep people on your platform, to keep them engaged. And that often means serving up some stuff that's pretty nasty and mean-spirited, not because the content is better, but because it keeps people glued to the platform, which is pretty gross. But we see this all the time, and not just with TikTok. I'm not trying to call them out here. It's on all these platforms. It's also one of the underlying principles that fuels the discussion around fake news and the promotion of extremist ideologies on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Over at the TikTok app, meanwhile, it's largely using a different type of curating. A common feature on social platforms is the ability to indicate you like 
a post or video or whatever. So you click on the little like button or the thumbs up icon or the little heart icon or whatever it is, and you express your admiration for the content. On the back end, the service logs this response and begins to develop a profile for you. Are you liking a lot of pictures of dogs on Instagram? Well, what do you know? When you start doing a search on Instagram, a lot of the images that are just going to populate before you even type in a search term are going to be dogs. On TikTok, if you indicate that the lip-syncing videos that have really clever edits, maybe they have really interesting makeup effects or something, you're clicking like on a lot of those, you're going to see more of those pop up in your feed. If you don't like videos that are more mean-spirited, like you never hit like on a mean-spirited video, then over time they're going to show up less frequently. Your actions guide TikTok to curating a feed that's most likely to keep your attention. Because again, keeping your attention, keeping you on the platform for as long as possible is the goal because that's what generates revenue for TikTok. There's a feedback loop going on here in which TikTok gathers information about its users. Then it makes use of that information to tweak the presentation of the platform to those users in an effort to improve the experience. And, and by improve the experience, I mean encourage more engagement, then monitor the results. The cycle repeats endlessly, with the goal of constantly morphing to suit the preferences of the individual user while also promoting content that has near-universal acceptance. There's another aspect of TikTok that we're going to explore when we come back, and that's how it has come under scrutiny from the standpoint of national security. I'll explain more in a minute, but first let's take another quick break. Before I get to the national security stuff with TikTok, it's important to mention that the app has been the object of scrutiny for lots of different reasons, not just national security. One of those reasons is that the app hasn't been terribly good at enforcing any sort of age restrictions. And so there have been some awful high-profile cases in which the app has played a part in putting kids in danger. For example, according to the South China Morning Post, kids in Hong Kong potentially put themselves in danger on TikTok by sharing personal information, like their full names or their phone numbers. So that's not great. And it's not that TikTok should prevent them from doing that, but TikTok allowing such young people access to the app in the first place, and I'm talking like 9 or 10-year-olds, that's a problem. TikTok, like pretty much any online space, has its share of predators who might try and exploit that kind of information, and that alone is truly disturbing and needs to be addressed. And because TikTok doesn't have good age restrictions in place, it has run afoul of the law in some countries. So in the United States, the Federal Trade Commission fined TikTok in February 2019 for collecting data on children under the age of 13. That's a violation of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act in the United States, also known as COPPA. Now, incidentally, I'll have to do a full episode on COPPA because it's a law that's affecting lots of people, including creators on YouTube, and it's actually a pretty complicated issue. Anyway, the FTC found TikTok guilty of violating COPPA and tracking this data of underage users. And so ByteDance was hit with a fine of um, $5.7 million. 
And sure, to folks like me, 5.7 million bucks is an enormous amount of money. It's truly enough to merit the designation of a princely sum. But around that same time, ByteDance had a valuation of nearly $80 billion. Do you know how many times 5.7 million goes into 80 billion? I do. I did the math. It's more than 14,000 times. It is 0.007% of the company's value. So the fine wasn't even a drop in the bucket for ByteDance. The app has also been in the spotlight for how it monetizes itself. So there's the advertising that I mentioned, of course. You know, you see ads and that generates revenue, but that's everywhere. But TikTok also allows for sponsored videos. So you could have a brand sponsor a content creator and that creator then goes and makes videos featuring that brand's products. And then you would have a tab in the app that would make it easy for users to purchase those products featured in the videos. They click on the little tab, they can order the stuff, and it really facilitates that transaction. Then there are the virtual items, which are coins and then virtual gifts. This gets a little wishy-washy, complicated, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. So TikTok allows, quote, select users aged 16 or above, end quote, to participate in the program. In this case, the program is live streaming. Quote, such users shall be selected exclusively at the discretion of the platform on the basis of various criteria, including their track record in creating quality content, their number of followers, etc. End quote. So live streaming is now a thing on TikTok, and you have to be at least 16 years old in order to be able to do it. Beyond that, for those users who are 18 years or older, there's an additional benefit. These users can purchase virtual coins, or if they are people in this live stream program, they can accept virtual items. So to purchase a virtual item, users have to be at least 18 years, or uh, they have to be the age of majority for their respective country. And they can purchase virtual gifts with virtual coins. The gifts are meant to show appreciation toward content creators. And the creators receive the gifts in the form of another virtual currency called diamonds, which is getting a bit confusing, right? Virtual coins are used to purchase virtual gifts, which convert into another virtual item called a diamond. Gift giving is public, by the way, so anyone on TikTok will be able to see when one user sends a gift to another, including what that gift was. Diamonds, meanwhile, are, as TikTok puts it, quote, a measurement of the popularity of the relevant user content, end quote. So it, it's essentially saying how good or how uh, popular is this video. TikTok reserves the right to determine the rate of conversion of diamonds to, you know, actual real-world money that can be spent on real-world stuff. So creators who earn diamonds can withdraw diamonds from their account, whereupon TikTok will convert the virtual diamonds into real money based in U.S. currency using an arbitrary conversion rule that the company dictates – so you can make money as a creator on TikTok, but the amount you make is purely at the whim of ByteDance. They might say like, oh, 100 diamonds equals $1 one day. And then the next day they might say 1,000 diamonds equals $1. 
it's completely up to the company and there's no solid conversion there. All right, but now about national security. What's going on there? Well, part of the issue doesn't necessarily point back to ByteDance, the company itself, but rather how extremists can make use of social media to spread their message or to spread misinformation or disinformation. The concern is that extremist groups can spread messages promoting their philosophies in short, bite-sized packages to a wide audience of mostly young and, by extension, impressionable viewers. Whether it's an organization like ISIS or a looser group such as white supremacists, there's a real concern that platforms like TikTok will serve as an entry point for more young people to join dangerous groups. Then there are fears that the app could be used to interfere with major events such as a country's elections. Here in the United States, there's a real concern that social media services are being leveraged by all sorts of parties, both domestic and foreign, in an effort to spread misinformation, to undermine faith in the democratic process, or otherwise affect the outcome of the elections process in some way. While you could argue, convincingly, I might add, that the way these social media platforms curate information can contribute to their misuse, you could also argue that the services themselves aren't necessarily engaged in these activities. They're enablers, but they're not necessarily instigators. So while there are real criticisms about platforms like Facebook promoting harmful misinformation or extremist views due to the way the Facebook algorithm works, most people would not go so far as to accuse Facebook itself of creating that content. But there's a big difference between TikTok and Facebook besides the way the two platforms present content. And that's the fact that TikTok is owned by a Chinese company. Now, I talked a lot about tech, politics, and China in my episodes about Huawei and also another one called Why Is Everything Made in China? But here's a quick overview. The government in China is ultimately under the governance of the Communist Party of China. In China, the government has tight controls on what the media is allowed to present to the Chinese public. The Chinese government can censor information, restrict access to information from outside China, and even dictate what can actually be communicated to citizens. In addition, in 2017, the government passed a law that says, quote, any organization and citizen, uh, in China that is, should support and cooperate the, in the national intelligence work, end quote. So that is, if the company or person originates in China, then that person or company has a duty to support China's national intelligence efforts, which includes spying. So you've got this incredibly popular app used by hundreds of millions of people around the world. And you have a country with a government that demands companies and citizens within that country amplify the country's own intelligence efforts. It is understandable why leaders in other countries would become concerned about the rise of popularity of a Chinese-based app. If the company were gathering all that data, it might be used in harmful ways. If people in the U.S. were to use the app in sensitive locations, such as on government property or on military sites, it could give away information to a not-quite-friendly country. In fact, in the United States, the Army and the Navy have banned the use of TikTok. You, you cannot install it on any government-issued phone. 
a country that has been known to employ hackers in cyber warfare projects in the past, China is already pretty high on that suspect list. So for some, the app is akin to handing over ammunition to an enemy during wartime. In September 2019, the newspaper The Guardian published an article that included excerpts from leaked documents from inside TikTok. Those documents showed that the company had been sending directives to moderators, whose job it is to look for content that violates TikTok's terms of service. The directives expanded that definition beyond the stuff you would expect, you know, stuff that depicts violence or sexual content. And the directives included other stuff, like if a video were to include material that criticized the Chinese government or one that addressed the political situation in Tibet or one that talked about other topics that the Chinese government wanted to restrict, those were to be removed or shifted over so that nobody would ever see them. So technically the videos would be on the platform, but they would be in a, a bucket that no one would ever access. When citizens in Hong Kong began organizing protests in 2019 against China, their stories were shared on numerous social platforms. Mysteriously, though, it was really hard to find any examples on TikTok. Since those protests were directed at mainland China, the implication was that TikTok might be purposefully suppressing any videos that were coming out of Hong Kong on TikTok that were related to the protests. Now, in the United States, lawmakers called for investigations into TikTok. ByteDance responded by saying that all U.S. user data exists on servers that are actually in the United States, with uh, some backups that are also in Singapore, but that no U.S. data, no U.S. user information lives on any servers in China itself, nor are the data on those servers subject to Chinese law. So the Chinese government cannot do anything about that, according to ByteDance, nor has it asked for any stuff to be taken down, according to ByteDance. Toward the end of 2019, rumors were popping up that ByteDance was actually considering selling off some or all of TikTok. ByteDance executives have denied these rumors. They say that the company has no plans to sell any of the service off, despite the pressure on the company uh, that it is facing on the international stage. At the same time, the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment launched an inquiry into whether or not uh, ByteDance should be forced to spin off Music Lee. That's the basis of TikTok's presence outside of China itself. As of this recording, ByteDance still has control of TikTok. And according to the company, the Chinese government has no say in how data outside of China can be stored or displayed. There have been a few cases in which investigators pointed out examples of apparent censorship, where people's videos appeared to have been taken down on purpose. But so far, the TikTok representatives have explained those away as just being examples of human error, you know. They're not examples of a conscious effort to suppress information. By the time you hear this, things may have changed. Uh, we'll have to see. There's also an ongoing concern that TikTok is uh, going to be the home of deep fakes in the near future. There's talk that ByteDance is investing heavily in technology that could lead to deep fake videos. So that's another thing that people are worried about. I'm sure I'll have to do an update on this topic in the future, but in the meantime, I'm going to sign off and go be old and grouchy for a while. 
If you guys want to reach out to me, please do. You can find me on those other old social media platforms. You know, the ones where an old guy like me can still feel comfortable. I'm talking about Twitter and Facebook. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.